the title of my topic is Saltwater or Freshwater Saltwater um, When Spiritual Heroes Fail Us. Now, where I want to begin is actually a practical question, and you'll find that this is quite a practical lecture. But I want to know what to do with these books. Now, these books are Becoming Human by Jean Vanier. Uh, Made for Happiness by uh, Vanier. It's actually um, based on his doctorate. We also have his book Community and Growth, which we, I don't have. Now, I don't know if you're familiar with Vanier. He's a, uh, he was a Catholic Canadian philosopher, but he was born in Switzerland and lived most of his life in France. Uh, his father was actually uh, governor general uh, from 59 to 67, Georges George Vanier. Uh, and he started something called L'Arche in 1964. Now, this was a place where um, he was wanting to make a home for those with intellectual disabilities. I think has expanded further beyond that. But <clears throat> it's, uh, he started in France, that's where he lived most of his life at this center uh, at L'Arche. But it was uh, something that boomed across the world, and now there's 138 operating communities globally. So it's an amazing work, and some people um, are considering him a living saint. He died at the age of 90, just last year. Uh, the New York Times described him in the obituary as a savior of people on the margins. Uh, there was, I don't know if you remember, the show, The Best or The Greatest Canadian. It was a call-in or a, a vote-in show, and Vanier was 12th greatest Canadian. Mm. Um, now, what Vanier does as a Christian, is it actually bridges Christians into the greater culture to show that there's a legitimacy to Christian claims. That's the fresh water. And a lot of people have come to Labrie and have been really fed by his books, have been really shaped by him spiritually, formed in their characters, and have been called to this type of life of community. But there's the salt water. That after his death, this February, Larsh, the community that he started, uh, revealed that he had taken advantage, or it was discovered that he had taken advantage of six vulnerable women through the 70s to 2005. Uh, and so that's, it's, it's a betrayal of, it's a hypocrisy because he was a ministry to the vulnerable. He took, um, he took advantage of, uh, of vulnerable women. So this verse betrayal was a hypocrisy, a place for vulnerable people, and then he took advantage of vulnerable women coming to him for spiritual care. Six women over uh, many decades. But then there's a deeper betrayal, that this was part and parcel of a false teaching. What he did is that when these women were looking for vulnerable uh, or for care, spiritual care, uh, he began to uh, cross over into sexual intimacy um, through touching and through um, uh, other forms of sexuality, 
by saying that it is Jesus who loves you through me. So he felt of himself that he was representing Jesus's love to these vulnerable women. So it's a betrayal, not only of hypocrisy, but also of Christ himself. One person writing on Vanier and the scandals uh, said, it is awful, indeed grotesque, to use a position of credibility and authority to pressure women into intimate, unwanted sexual behavior. But cloaking sexual manipulation, what many would now consider sexual assault, in explicit language of Christian faith, unconsciously compounds the damage. It crushes the spirit of the faithful. So it deeply tarnished his own reputation, but it also hurt the mission of large, this community for vulnerable people. Uh, now, there have been other leaders who have, or prominent figures who have dramatically fallen. Uh, you can, sometimes these people fall or something happens and there's not much consequence. Uh, in sports, sometimes people are convicted of child abuse or child neglect or domestic abuse of other forms, and yet they still get to play sports because they're so valuable to the team. They still get paid lots of money. Uh, you've seen this with actors, but sometimes it does cut against their careers. You see someone like Kevin Spacey, who uh, did horrible things, uh, and now he always played a character that was always the bad guy. And yet when it came out that he had done some uh, uh, things with young male minors, is that he was completely blacklisted. Um, and, or you have someone like Bill Cosby, who spoke of uh, the fatherhood and of family values, and yet was discovered that for years he had drugged and raped women. You see such betrayals not just among the a-religious, you see it even among the religious, the spiritual. Uh, you, there's a long list on beliefnet.com. You can find that there's betrayals um, not only in Christian circles, but Jewish, Buddhist, Muslim, Hindu, Harry Krishna, and so on. Wherever you look, you seem to find betrayals. So it's not unique to the Christian faith. However, um, when it does come from a Christian leader, it cuts deeply. It hurts communities. It divides communities. It hurts individuals. It marginalizes individuals. Uh, and worse, it eclipses the hope that one might find in Jesus. I've had so many people come to Labrie with this hope that maybe they can find something, but they're moving away from the church because of some abuse or some betrayal. Now, this betrayal doesn't, I'm not talking about just sexual abuse. There can be uh, gambling addictions, alcohol addictions, there can be tax evasion, there can be uh, embezzlement, uh, on and on. Uh, legalistic, uh, legalism, whatever you have. So there's lots of betrayals that can happen between the Christian leaders or the pastors and the congregation. But this cuts deeply um, because of this, it eclipses that this hope that we might have in Jesus as the only hope from sin. And so people think if this leader can't uh, be uh, helped by the gospel, then what hope is there for me? If this person has lost hope in Jesus Christ, 
then why should I have hope? So this is behind the practical question, should we keep these books and what should I do with Vanier's work and with his legacy of building these communities for the vulnerable? So I wanna respond in five, um, with five responses. <clears throat> so how are we to respond when our Christian heroes fail us? How might we maintain a hope in Jesus? So I'm gonna give you five responses, but this is kind of the driving question behind all of what I wanna say. How might we present and preserve the gospel in our midst, that's so in us, in the community, in the world, when its witness has been marred by moral failure by our leaders, by our spiritual leaders? Okay, so this is the first of five points. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The Bible, Paul writes in Romans chapter 3, verse 23, that there is no one perfect, no one, no one's righteous, not even one. Only Jesus Christ himself is the righteous one. Now, this is the first thing that has to be said. We are all sinful, we all fall short, but it is not the last thing that we have to say. G.K. Chesterton said, when the world goes wrong, it proves rather that the church is right. The church is justified not because her children do not sin, but because they do. So Chesterton was writing, saying that the Bible says, and, and the, as the church proclaims, we are all sinful. So let's not be surprised that someone does sin. Uh, and so many people will take this up and say, yes, our spiritual leader has failed, like Vanier, but who's the first to cast the stone? We're all guilty. But the problem with this is that it can further the betrayed or the abused, and it can prevent the access or the um, promoting justice for the person who's been betrayed or for the community that needs it. I'm gonna make those points in a minute, but I want to stick with this first point that we are all sinners, that we're all sinful. We all fall short of our best moral efforts. We even fail to the best moral imaginations we have for ourselves. We can't even keep to a diet. <laughs> the moral failure that we witness in our leaders and throughout all the figures in the Bible, not excluding one, reminds us that there's only one to whom we can turn, and that's Jesus Christ. Only Jesus is the one who does not fail and who has laid down his life for sinners, those who fall short. So it says in Psalm 146, verse 3, do not put your trust in princes, in human beings who cannot save. You cannot. You cannot. Preach it. That's all. They all fail. When people recognize this, uh, when we recognize, um, uh, when we recognize that all people are sinful, even our spiritual leaders, when they fail, um, we are deeply wounded. But our faith in Jesus is not devastated. The problem is, is that when we lift in our society a person on a pedestal, like an idol, they injure us more deeply. So instead of a fellow beggar pointing to bread, people might falsely look on a leader as Christ themselves, because this is who they represent. But just because the, the leader might represent Christ's body in some way doesn't mean that they are Christ himself. And so it hurts the person and the community because they trusted the leader 
too deeply, as in an idol. So this betrayal of trust, um, however, can lead to a mistrust of Christians, can lead to a mistrust of the church, and at worst, it can lead to a distrust of Jesus himself. Um, so it's important for our leaders, uh, for myself, to remind you I am sinful. I fall short. Do not think I'm Jesus. I am not by a far stretch. Just ask Julia. Okay. My pastor wore robes, black robes. Now, he always said, and I respected him for this, he said, these robes do not make me holy. <laughs> Don't set me up. I'm a sinner like you. Paul, an apostle, would speak of himself as the chief of sinners, the main sinner. Peter, as a disciple, betrayed Jesus, and then as an apostle, led people into a hypocrisy. Um, and Paul had to rebuke Peter as an apostle to not lead people away from the gospel. So while there is accountability and a need for a high standard for Christian leaders, and I'll get to that in a minute, we must begin here that all fall short of the glory of God. Okay, so that's the first point. Moving on to two. So while that's the first point, it's not the last. There's a lot more to say about this. Yes. So my second point is that there needs to be a care for the betrayed. There needs to be a care for the abused. Now, the betrayed could be an individual, but it can also be a community. A community can be betrayed, or it can be a betrayal to the body of Christ, as I think Jean Vanier did. Now, uh, Grimm, Stanley Grimm and Roy Bell wrote a book called Betrayal of Trust, which is a really great book. And they said that this betrayal is similar to a family betrayal. Because there's the bonds of Christian community uh, are called the family of God. And there's such deep bonds of unity in heart and in spirit, in the Holy Spirit. And so this betrayal, is, it cuts deeper than an actor or even Bill Cosby. You're, you, you might not like Bill Cosby anymore, but it doesn't necessarily reflect your personal belief system. Um, and so this betrayal is a betrayal, almost like a family betrayal. And so when a parent betrays a child, it cuts more deeply. How devastating when that child is marginalized, when that child is further betrayed, perhaps blamed, perhaps silenced. To pretend nothing has happened, to silence someone for the integrity of the family, or to blame that person or to blame the abused. This happens all too often in churches. And so this intimacy increases the importance that we need for the integrity of leaders. So James says, not many of you should become teachers, my fellow believers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. It's in reflection of this integrity that's needed because of this intimacy of family union in the spirit. Or Peter says, it is time for judgment to begin with God's household. So when Jesus comes in his glory, the first people judged are not the most wicked. It's his own people. It's God's church. So we must be godly in how we practice, how we think about when someone has betrayed this trust, and how we respond. And when the betrayed is silenced or blamed when they do speak, furthers the harm done. 
Uh, Henry Ward Beecher was a pastor in New York in 1868. It was discovered that he had had a long, long affair with one of his closest friends, Elizabeth Hilton. Now, the husband came forward with clear evidence, with even Tilton's own testimony, the church stood behind Beecher. In 1878, the congregation excommunicated those who had testified against Beecher, including Elizabeth Tilton. She died in 1897, ostracized and alone. So the abuse can be further betrayed when they're not the ones in power. Yet this cuts against the message of the gospel that it is for the vulnerable. Yeah, it does. While it's not speaking of the moral failure um, of leaders, James points out the partiality that we can show toward the rich rather than the poor. He says, don't, um, so when the rich walked into the churches, um, uh, to the communities that James was writing to, that they were giving the rich the nicest chairs and they were making the poor stand in the back. They were not allowed to eat first from the communion table, these types of things. So James says that has not, not, that's not the gospel. You cannot marginalize the vulnerable and increase those who have power or wealth. Now, while James is pointing not to the moral failure of the leaders I'm talking about today, I think it points in the same way that we cannot show partiality toward our leaders over congregants. So that's why confession and repentance from our leaders are a part of healing and reconciliation um, for those who are betrayed, whether it's the individual, the community, or even the body of Christ. What it does, it exposes that the failure came not from the betrayed, but from the leader. This, start, this enables um, proper care to be shown. There should also be an immediate caring. There should be an immediate caring uh, and a wise response to those betrayed. Now, I do know that there are sometimes false accusations. We have to say that that's not always what happens. And so we have to take people with credibility. So um, we have to believe them with credibility before the evidence shows. Well, however they need care. So first to, to listen to them um, and then also to see if the accusations are true and to know if there needs to be a further process. To, that's right. I'm not, I'm not giving it too much, but sometimes, uh, uh, you know, but sometimes there are false accusations. I knew one guy who was falsely accused. He was, um, he was falsely accused by a junior high girl. And, uh, and so he was deeply shamed and it came out a year later that she had made it up. She was just jealous because she was not getting the attention that she wanted in uh in the group uh but what happened is that the man had to move away from the community and get another job and it was a it was a stain on his reputation for a year and within that community some didn't know that it was that he was vindicated mm -hmm. they hear the scandal they believe the scandal and then he's tainted by the scandal without but even though there are false accusations, it doesn't mean that we shouldn't take each accusation credibly. I think the Me Too movement and the Church Too movement give us some indication of that as well. Now, what's painful is, uh, 
is that Vanya never confessed and therefore never repented. In fact, these findings came out after he had died. He died last year, May, um, as 90 years old, and it was only this February that the findings came that he had, that he had done this. Uh, I really respect that Larsh tried to do the most healing that they could do by trying to have an independent board investigate this so that these women might be heard and vindicated, even at the expense of their own ministry. Now, I don't know why Vanier didn't come forward. Uh, I can imagine that if he held this, that maybe he feared for this, his legacy, but maybe he feared for what would happen to Larsh, maybe what would happen to these people. Uh, we don't know. We don't know why he didn't speak up. Um, but anyway, uh, he held the ministry, it seems, over the gospel. And that's my third point. So my first point is all have fallen short of the glory of God. We need to remember that we're all sinful. But the second is that we need to care for those who are betrayed. We need to make sure that we, that we provide justice um, and a hearing and a process for these people, um, or maybe even for the community. But the third is that we need to remember that the gospel comes before the ministry. Uh, sometimes we end up having the ends justifying the means. Uh, we have people want to not betray, they betray the gospel in order to preserve the gospel. They betray the gospel in order to preserve the ministry, the gospel ministry. And, but they put the cart before the horse. The engine that drives ministry is the gospel itself, not the ministry. Now, what happens is that sometimes leadership in their uh, best minds think that it's better to hurt a few than many. Just think about the scandal it would bring on Jesus' name. Think about how it would hurt all these many good programs. You can understand that this is all true and understandable. You can see the temptation of it. But damages has already been done. The damage has been done to this one. And Jesus looks for the one. He, does, he comes and he does not bruise or read. There was a young Labrie student that came. Uh, she was a, a worship leader in the church. And from 15 to 18 years old, she had been abused by her youth pastor, uh, a female youth pastor. And it was three years until she realized this is deeply messed up. She didn't realize how messed up it was. And so she finally came out of silence and spoke up. Her parents supported her. They went to the church. And what happened is that the leader put the youth pastor on leave. They believed it. It was credible. There was proof. So there was no doubt that this had happened. There was a long trail of evidence. And the truth was not revealed. And so this young woman went to her pastor and said, why hasn't this been said? And why is she just on leave rather than ousted or something, something more than just silence? And the pastor said to her, we need to learn to keep the peace. And she told me, I've learned, I learned at that moment the difference between peacekeeping and peacemaking. But sometimes making peace is a difficult process. I was very thankful that she did not leave the faith. She did not leave the church. 
you know, it's tempting that leaders can become utilitarian. They forget the gospel and they become utilitarian where they're wanting to do the greatest good for the greatest number of people. But the Bible is not always about the greatest number. It's about truth and reconciliation for the least of these. So we must abide in the gospel as gospel in allowing the ministry to follow from that. Now, the ministry may be hurt. Uh, it might even end. But if the gospel is preserved and how it's been done, I think that brings uh, glory to Jesus. <clears throat> now, of course, we need to be wise in how this is done. I just talked about false accusations that can happen. I've also seen ministers scapegoated to blame somebody for uh, an indiscretion and used as a platform to blame all the problems with the church on this one person. I've seen a, um, a man uh, publicly shamed for a marital indiscretion in front of 10,000 people and having to confess in person. Um, instead of trying to uh, bring reconciliation, they brought a lot of shame on him and a lot of pressure from the 10,000 people. And so this brings me to my fourth point. Okay, so the first is that we've all sinned. Second, care for the betrayer. Third, gospel before ministry. The betrayed, what did I say? The betrayer. Sorry, the betrayed is second. The fourth is care for the betrayer. I was like, are you president? Are you? Can you? <laughs> this is Paul in Galatians. Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. But watch yourselves, or you will also be tempted. It's interesting that Paul is thinking about how we, not only should there be confession, James says we should confess our sins to one another, but Paul is also very aware of what we can do when we find someone that we want to blame. So he says, restore the person gently. Now, in saying this, I, I want to point before how we might think of restoring the betrayer, um, depending on the betrayal. I want to say something about the pressures of Christian leaders the very real pressures of pastors. Now, some scholars say that it's more a betrayal of power than of sex, usually. Now, certainly, many spiritual uh, people see spiritual leaders as corrupted by power. They have a successful ministry, power goes to their head, popularity goes to their head, and they can forget the message of the gospel, that they are servants of the people. Um, <clears throat> But many pastors, even mega church pastors, despite their influence, don't feel powerful at all. That's not their experience. Rather, they feel isolated, lonely, overwhelmed, overwhelmed with needs, overwhelmed with expectations. To whom might they go? Um, a church can become what uh, Grins and Bell called a total institution. That means that there's nothing outside of the church as their life. The church is their life. And the congregation expects the church to be their whole life. Uh, there was a survey by Dr. Tom Rayner, uh, and I got this from Scott Saul's blog. And Tom Rayner did a survey and said, uh, okay, how much do you expect your pastor to work each week? And they had a list in how many hours. 
Uh, so they should get to ministry, prayer, sermon prep, outreach, counseling, administrative tasks, visiting the sick, community involvement, denominational engagement, church meetings, worship services, and more. The minimum amount a church expects of their pastor is 114 hours a week. It's impossible. Some try. Some become control freaks because of the pressure. That's how they try to get a handle on them, especially with bigger ministries. So this is why a pastor is most likely to have an affair with the congregant. Because it's a total institution. They have no other avenues. Now it's deeply egregious because it's one of their flock. It's those who are in their care, one of the vulnerable. And it deeply affects the relationships in the community. Yet it is because their church demands their whole life, their failings can happen internally. Internally. While there are real moral failings in pastors, we must recognize that churches can become complicit in their leader's failure. This can easily happen when a spiritual leader is idolized, held up as one who can accomplish the gospel for the community. The community is then betrayed by a moral failure and yet not recognizing their own complicity. Now, this isn't to diminish the leader's moral failure. Rather, it's just simply to put in light a more complex reality. This pressure has led Christian leaders to walk away from faith and even to die by suicide. Many Christian leaders have died by suicide. They cannot keep up. They cannot measure up. And sometimes when they discover that there is a shame attached to them and that will be discovered and they have let down not just themselves and their families, but hundreds or thousands or more, then they can take their life. And that can cause a deeper shame and a deeper betrayal to the community. And people are trying to figure out how to think of this. So with all this, think about how susceptible these pastors or these church leaders or spiritual leaders are. So the first I want to speak of is the susceptibility of the wanderer. You can go ahead if you want. Yeah. So think of all these pressures and think of how the leader can be susceptible. The one who is more susceptible is the wanderer. I'm gonna compare the wanderer to the predator. The wanderer under these pressures is more susceptible to abusing their power or betraying their power or their trust. Now, a wanderer is one who does not premeditate a betrayal. They're not looking to do something shady. This person often feels their inadequacy. They feel vulnerable. Then under extreme amount of difficulties, expectations and stress, this person finds a caring person who shares some deep intimacy found often between a pastor and a congregant, and as a result can become sexually intimate, or there's a betrayal of trust. Now this, for the wanderer, often happens just once or for a brief period of time. This wanderer will then feel quickly remorse, shame, guilt, and all the rest. In an attempt to feel less lonely, they turn to someone, and then it only worsens their loneliness and isolation. 
it adds shame and it adds a real potential loss to job and to calling. The wanderer is the one who is vulnerable, who did not guard their heart. So Paul speaks in his letter to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 26 through 27. I do not run like someone running aimlessly. I do not fight like a boxer beating the air. No, I strike a blow to my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. Or you have John who says, watch out that you do not lose what you have worked for, but that you may be rewarded fully. So even the apostles knew of these stresses and the importance of guarding their hearts and their bodies. But this turns me to the predator. The predator is unlike the wanderer. While um, you might have sympathy for the wanderer, because I think all of us have wandering in our hearts in some way, we must be aware of the predator. The predator is one who over time intentionally deceives for personal advantage or gain. They intentionally deceive over a period of time. Now, the word predator is often used for the language of a sexual abuser. I'm trying to enlarge it, maybe we can use a different word, but of any kind of betrayal of, of um, of Robert Tilton, who took all the money over a long period of time. Uh, in fact, Robert Tilton, I don't know if you've ever seen his prayers on TV. He asked if you, if you have some need or if you want wealth, send your prayer request and some in a check. I'll pray for you and then answer your prayer because he had the anointing of the Spirit. And he often demonstrated his anointing of the Spirit on TV. Well, it was discovered that he took these prayer requests the, and, his, and his assistants, they would, they would chunk them, they would burn them, and take the money. Yes. And Robert Tilton got discovered, his church shut down, but then he started a new ministry. And people still buy the lie. And he's living lavishly still. Unbelievable. This is a predator. So was Vanier predator? Sadly, it seems closer to the truth than a wanderer. Six different women over three decades, four decades. Um, so I was thinking about that as like more than, it was sexual. I was thinking more than one person per decade. No. That would, you know, it, it, was, it was something that wasn't just done once, but it was over a period of time. He also silenced them. He said, don't tell anybody because you know what harm that would bring. Um, he also denounced his spiritual mentor, Father Thomas Philippe, who held the same false beliefs that sexual touch could demonstrate the love of Jesus. And when he found out that Father Thomas's scandals had been revealed, uh, Vignet said, I'm unable to peacefully reconcile these two realities. How could this man be such a strong mentor, um, have shaped Larsh even so strongly, and yet be this predator? And yet he himself were doing the exact same thing. When was that? 2015 is when Father, uh, Father Thomas Philippe was discovered. Oh, okay. Even so though he died in 93. So he had stopped the 
the with the wing in it in two thousand five. Yes. And his mentor came out to the 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 expose of Father Thomas came out in 2015, 10 years after he had stopped. Okay. And then he but in 2015, he was 87. Okay. But yes, I mean, he was, in, he, he positioned himself of, of denouncing or condemning this type of behavior. And he himself was doing it. And didn't come forward at that time. <clears throat> so we don't know his mind, but it seems that he follows the habits or the patterns of a predator, not of a wanderer, which is sickening and deeply sad. Yes. Did he think what he was doing was good for these women? Yes, he did. Yes. He thought that in their vulnerability and their loneliness, they needed physical touch. So is that, like, it's not really just that small <laughs> thing and saying, it's that that thing. Well, yes. I mean, I would consider that personal advantage in some way because he's getting the touch. I don't think that he's immune to that. Perhaps that is the language he uses and maybe he had some good intentions. But as I mentioned earlier, it's a false teaching. And I think that is a sacramentalism, that uh, sacramental theology that went awry. That he thought that he represented, he was the altar Christus, even though he wasn't a priest, but he was this kind of Christ representative. And therefore he was displaying the love of Jesus to his woman. Uh, and he knew that was wrong because he didn't want them to talk about it. And he denounced Father Thomas Philippe. So he knew there was something not right. Now he could have thought that it was just some kind of secret, not people, people may can't understand this, but I believe he knew there was something wrong about it. And therefore that points to some personal gain. Okay, so the need for gospel restoration in a leader's life, what should it look like to restore the betrayer? What does it look like? Well, it depends um, what the betrayal is. Um, what's the extent of the betrayal and what's the nature of the person? Were they a wanderer? Is there, is there remorse? Is there repentance? Or is there a predator? Is there an unwillingness to even repent or confess to see something that is wrong? Now, some leaders may be uh, reconciled and even restored to leadership over time. Now, this is usually a temporary failure and of lesser effect. Um, perhaps uh, um, a, a time period of alcoholism or a period of porn addiction or a control freak or something like that, where there is over time, I'm not saying how long or how short, I'm saying over time there is the possibility of being restored to leadership. If confession and repentance are truly at work and, humili um, and humili humility is there, then there can be real possible restoration over time through wise discretion. Humility can shape uh, failure and um, humiliation turning to humility can actually shape people to be better leaders. However, some may be able to be restored to the community but not back to leadership. This might be extensive abuse, 
uh, I'm not talking about sexual abuse, but just of, of, of control, excessive control, um, or harassment, or kind of bullying. Uh, and in cases, you might come back and there's people who are vulnerable. Now, they can be side by side by these people if they are not put in those leadership. And I have seen people who have become leaders and they have become immediately bad leaders. But they're amazing community members. And so imagine a person is being restored to the community as a sinner saved by grace. However, the former leader needs to be humble and truly repentant. There was a, a student who came who spoke of a Korean pastor, not you. Uh, and they said that this pastor had sexually harassed the community and they had abused their power. Well, the church dismissed this pastor, believed the allegations, which were incredible, brought the pastor back to community. And this pastor was allowed to be in that community. Uh, but it really surprised him that he was never allowed to be a leader again. He was shocked. He's like, I thought after the year I can be leader again. This is why the church succeeded because of me. And so what he ended up doing is that he took half the congregants and started his own church. So we have to be careful about how we restore. But I think the church did right. But what happened was a further betrayal. So some need to be restored and can be restored to leadership. Some can only be restored to community, but some need to be restored elsewhere. This is when the betrayal is too deep and too wide, too extensive. It can bring harm on the abused who remain a part of the community. Think of the abuse of minors or those who are still vulnerable that are still in the church. Perhaps there needs to be a special ministry to those who are struggling with certain addictions and that may be, uh, let's say, pedophilia. And that maybe they need the gospel and the gospel still is extended to them, but they need to be elsewhere. But this person, if they are sent to a different community, there needs to be an awareness of what follows this person. Now, I don't think that they need to have the scarlet letter follow them. This big A that Nathaniel Hawthorne wrote in his letter, I mean, in his story about this one caught in adultery and she had to walk with a big A around town. And so she was constantly seen as the adulterer. And so sometimes people walk away with that constant shame. But, I, but there's no way that you can get away from that type of shame uh, unless you're really hiding it. But I was thinking maybe it's more of the mark of Cain. The mark of Cain was a mark that God set on him that because Cain is afraid of who might receive him and how they might respond to him. And God said, I will be your protector. So maybe someone... Um, who does something that is deeply sinful and deeply shameful, um, I mean, not deeply simple, deeply hurtful, then, uh, then they need to go elsewhere with this awareness, but it may be in such a way that they can be restored gently in their own context, rather than have someone like Cardinal, Cardinal Bernard Law, who was a Catholic priest in Boston, who covered up two Catholic priests and shuffled them from parish to parish to parish as they were um, abusing minors as they went because there was not the follow-up and the awareness. So churches need to be wise about how they expose 
and they want to maintain the gospel for even the deepest betrayer, but in such a way that they might be restored in a context where they can hear the gospel and brought to full repentance. And of course, this points to all that all churches need to be wise in their accountability and in thinking about how to proceed in applying the gospel to the betrayed, to the community, and to the betrayer. Okay, my fifth point. This is my final point. Legacies. What should we do with Vanier's writings? What should we do with his work? What about Bill Hybels? He was a, a pastor of Willow Creek. He was accused of, um, of sexual indiscretions. And uh, he has denied them, but they said that they're credible. Should I keep his books? His book, Too Busy Not to Pray. What about Martin Luther King Jr., who had sexual indiscretions? What about his cause? Listen to Jesus' words as a response. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, this is from Matthew 23. Jesus said to the crowd and his disciples, the teachers of the religious law and the Pharisees are the, I'm sorry, the teachers of religious law and the Pharisees are the official interpreters of the law of Moses. So practice and obey whatever they tell you, but don't follow their example, for they don't practice what they teach. Jesus goes on to say in verse 27 of the same chapter, what sorrow awaits you teachers of religious law and you Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, beautiful on the outside, but filled on the inside with dead people's bones and all sorts of impurity. Outwardly, you look like righteous people, but inwardly, your hearts are filled with hypocrisy and lawlessness. Um, so these excerpts are a part of a longer passage of where Jesus says a lot. Um, but here Jesus is making an interesting command. He is saying that to the crowds and the disciples, listen to these teachers. And he's not just saying listen to these teachers, but obey and practice what they teach. But then he announces seven woes to these same teachers for being hypocrites and blind guides because they practice the tiny parts of the law to make themselves look good, but they miss the whole point of the law, justice, mercy, faith, and purity of heart. So it's surprising. Listen to what they teach, even obey what they teach, but don't follow their practice. Woe to you, teachers. Woe to you, hypocrites. Woe to you, blind guides. It's interesting. Matthew 23. It brings a lot of encouragement if you've been betrayed. So how might we apply this to Vanier and other Christian writers who have proven hypocritical? In response to Vanier, to this question about Vanier directly, N.T. Wright says that one's writing should be determined by the strength of one's argument, by if what one says is true. Um, I'll get into that a bit more, but I want to, I want to uh, juxtapose two things, false teaching versus hypocrisy. Does the writing or the work reflect where it went wrong? Does L'Arche reflect the sexual abuses that Vanier committed? 
does his writing reflect even the hint of that direction? I mean, you can think of obvious false teaching like Robert Tilton. I don't think he ever wrote a book. Um, but, you know, sometimes work is more subtle. Uh, there's a guy named Steve Timmis. He was the CEO of Acts 2-9. And he, uh, CEO of Acts 2-9, yeah, exactly right. Um, but it was, it was a large ministry of ministries. And he was, he was forced to resign because of bullying and controlling. One person said it was a cause of gospel gaslighting. Gaslighting is when someone makes you think that you're crazy, even though that person is abusing you. And they're making you think that you're crazy for thinking that. That's called gaslighting. There's a famous movie called Gaslight, I think. Powerful movie in the black and white. Wonderful. Yeah. Yeah, okay. And so this is what InterVarsity Press UK, they stopped present, um, uh, they start, they stopped printing all of Timmis's titles. And this is, uh, and this is what, um, a quote from Christianity Today talking about this. InterVarsity Press UK will no longer, um, I don't know, I copied paste this. Uh, will no longer uh, sell Timmis's titles, including Total Church and Everyday Church, both co-written by Tim Chester, citing that the style of close church community advocated in these books lacked sufficient safeguards against abusive controls, and apologizing for them possibly contributing to unhealthy and even abusive church culture. Now, this was a book that I read. I was recommended to read as an elder of a previous church. Uh, and I didn't think it was all too bad, but I, I liked some of it. I didn't like some, of it. I didn't think about it too much. But when Steve Timmis was discovered of someone who was a control freak and in the kind of abuses were actually um, reflected from his book, that there was, a, it was a total institution, it was total control. And so Ivy um, P UK said, actually this book, does not have sufficient safeguards. It's not saying it's teaching falsehood, but it, it is teaching in such a way that does not allow the proper safeguards to prevent abuse or abusive cultures. And so this calls us to be wise in how we read, even if, I mean, especially if we read Christian books. So what of Vanier? Let me read what one person wrote. His name was Brett Fawcett. And he wrote in, in a journal called Convivium, which I recommend to anyone who lives in Canada. I think that's all of us but one. Uh, or, I'm sorry, there are people on Zoom who do not live in Canada. I apologize. But Convivium is a great online journal. But this is what Brett Fawcett writes of what should we do about Vanier's books. This is a longer quote, but it's easy to understand. Vanier was worse than a hypocrite. His sins seemed to discredit his entire thought, and with it, his entire work. How can we take his spiritual counsel seriously when we see what he used his spiritual counsel for behind closed doors? How can we hear his words about community being a place where we lower our walls and share with each other when we know how he invaded other people's intimacy? under the guise of mentorship. 
to think of the multitudes of people living in large, those innocent, childlike people, blissfully unaware of Vanier and his crimes, who now unwittingly exist in the shadow of these findings is sickening. Larsh deserves a lot of credit for seriously trying to get to the bottom of this by hiring an independent investigator and allowing his findings to be made public. It was good not to cover up the nakedness of the man who built the ark. But what becomes of Larsh now? With their founder's words discredited like this, where do they go from here? In cases of spiritual leaders who turn out to be unrepentant sinners, the first instinct is to separate the teacher from the teaching as some attempt to do with Karl Barth's long-term adultery with his secretary. In Vanier's case, as we've seen, that might not be possible. The second reflex might be to dismiss the whole body of his work as tainted by his sin. This is what many perhaps justifiably want to do with the Legion of Christ. But looking at all the beautiful fruit of L'Arche, that's a painful option to consider. Here's what makes Vanier's wrong most painful of all. His public teaching was true. His simple but pointed advice on love and community was correct. Our lived experience rebels against this choice. So what is left? If we can't get rid of the teacher or the teaching, I think all that's left for us is to find a new place for Vanier within his own thought. In other words, we need to see him as the kind of villain he so astutely warns us against. So what he's saying there is that Vanier, the writer says that the beauty of the writings and the work of Vanier uh, actually condemn Vanier's actions. It doesn't promote Vanier's actions, it actually condemns Vanier's actions. And so Vanier becomes the villain which he warned against in his writings. But I want to mention a moment of private versus public. It's one thing to wonder if I should read Vanier. It's another to put it in a public library, like we do at Labrie. So in private use, one may discern on their own what triggers them, what obstacles, what harms them. Uh, they may make use of something and try to use it wisely, try not to stumble over it and try to weed out what is untrue maybe just as reading a non-Christian work, um, applying it to the truth found ultimately in the Bible. Now, a quick caveat. Um, why read anything that's not in the Bible? Let's just keep with the Bible. However, modern works are not as authoritative as Scripture, yet modern works help us apply Scripture to contemporary issues. In contemporary language, sometimes making scripture understood better or in or, or a new light. But so th this is what makes Vanier so important um, because he spoke so well to cultural issues. But let me talk about that in just one minute. Hold off on that one minute. So I want to talk about public. Privately, I could read it if I wanted to discern, but publicly, what should I do? When it's public, there are other considerations. What of those who have been hurt by the church in the same way as Vanier had hurt someone? What if someone walked in and one out of every three women who've walked into Labrie has experienced sexual abuse? 
So what do I do when they see Vanier's books that they know about this story now? Now, we don't want to make someone stumble, even if there's truth in his books, even if the books are totally true. Labrie is really an attempt um, to try to remove the obstacles when that, or, the, um, or the unnecessary obstacles uh, to help people believe in Jesus as their own hope. Now, we may wonder, what if we find the content elsewhere? What if someone writes of the same kind of content like Bill Hybels, How I'm Too Busy to, Not to Pray? Well, maybe we can find another book on prayer. We can remove Hybels and replace it with an author of some moral pedigree or at least integrity that is known. But this is the problem. Vanier is so unique, so essential to Canadian culture. He spoke of the importance of those with disabilities, not as burdens, but as our teachers. In large, they're referred to as core members. This is all the more important in a day and age when those with disability are more vulnerable to efficiency and control in our culture. That are, where, um, when Down's syndrome is more likely to be avoided. When those who are aging and who are um, um, beyond much action are quickly encouraged to be euthanized. Where is the place for the vulnerable in our society? And this is where Vanier's voice has been so strong. And Christians and non-Christians could gather over what Vanier had done. Now this has been discredited. And yet his work is so important. We can't replace his work with another person's work. Except same boat, different lake. Different boat, same lake, right? So what should I do? So this leads me to my concluding remarks. So what am I going to do with Vanier's books? I'm going to put them in my private collection. Unless, Liz, you want Okay. But I'm going to place Vanier in a private collection. In order to help people not to stumble, but I'm going to keep it, and I'm willing to lend it with qualifications to the one who needs to hear it. So this leads to two more concluding remarks, and this is where I finish. So my whole point in all this is that the gospel needs to be articulated, not just in what we say, but in what we do. It's true for the betrayer. It's also true for the church or the body that is betrayed in how we respond the gospel to impact the complexity of our lives and of those sinful lives. And lastly, we should pray that we ourselves, I myself, do not stumble. That we do not stumble in our own wanderings, especially if you're a spiritual leader. It's easy to condemn, but it can happen so easily, especially if there's not enough accountability or if one is looking for relief because ministry has become too much, too fast. Circumstances and pressures can come more quickly than we know, not just when things get hard, but even when they succeed. So watch out that you do not lose what you have worked for, but that you may be rewarded fully. Okay, so let's have a discussion. So does anyone have a statement or a question they have to start off with? Liz. Um, I was thinking 
while you're talking about the example of King David. The question is, is what do we do about King David? Mm -hmm. I've brought him up at a few times uh, as an example of someone who betrayed the trust of the people and even of, uh, of represent, a representative of God. What he did is that he, you know, we, we often talk about the murder of King Uriah. I'm not King Uriah, Uriah, uh, the soldier, but her husband, but Bathsheba herself was really ultimately taken and sexually assaulted and became his wife. And we don't ever really hear much from Bathsheba, except later on as an older woman trying to buy for her son's success. So we don't really hear much of Bathsheba. And the child that they had conceived in that moment died because of a curse from God. Now, in that moment, David was unrepentant, so much so that he killed her husband to cover up sin. However, the prophet, his accountability partner, God sent him and exposed him. Now, other leaders had been exposed through prophetic word, through, um, through parable. David responds. He realizes that he is the guilty one and that he had become a blind guy. And so what he does is he confesses his sin and he repents. And, and you can see his repentance through one of the Psalms. Now, what you have with David is true confession and true repentance. What you also have with David is true consequence. So just because someone confesses and repents doesn't mean that they won't suffer the consequences of that action. His family was uh, riddled with sexual confusion and political, not even intrigue, but division. Uh, but when there's true repentance, then, you know, it's, you can say, okay, there's true repentance. Let's, let's see what we can restore. And so as we look at words of David, a lot of his Psalms are not, uh, you know, preaching down at people, but it's often confession of his own sins and the confessions of his struggles and and the struggle of abiding in God. Uh, and so he's not writing a treatise of sexual behavior and then doing something opposite. So he had a moral failure. It was a deep betrayal of the community and of God. And yet he confessed, he repented, and he was restored. And so when we look at his Psalms, we can say this was a man that was deeply stained by sin. And yet he still had a heart for God and uh, in a heart for God that we can imitate. And many people will look to David's words as something that they can hold on to as fellow sinners. So I think David is in a unique case. He was repentant. But you do see other kings that were unrepentant. How in church leaders do that today? Like whether that you know, yeah, if a church leader did what King David said? Yeah. yeah. I mean, if... I think that there are probably examples of people who have sinned as King David had today. Now, like I said, it all depends on what David writes. Now, what David is writing is under the inspiration or the breath of God, and that his words to God has become God's words to us that we might use to him, as Brueggemann would say. Uh, it's a wonderful thought of a, this divine discourse that we're allowed to take up. But even if someone, uh, like, if, if someone writes, like, let's say someone wrote a book of prayers and confessions, and they had gone through the ringer, as some people, has some spiritual leaders who have fallen, 
and who have confessed and repented have written books on their recovery and on their restoration. There's a lot of weight behind those books, and those books are necessary. Uh, and so uh, I think that when there's confession and true repentance, we need to be, uh, we need to listen more carefully and to not just reject them outright. There's a, there's a problem in today's culture of wanting to purify the history. And if there is one stain, if there's one stain on their um, record, one blotch on their escutcheon, um, on their seal, uh, then we want to discredit them. It's a cancel culture. But uh, we need to realize that the reality is complex, and people's lives are complex, and that there can be fresh water and salt water. Uh, that there can that uh, people can do great things and also horrible things at the same time, and so we need to through the lens of scripture understand this person and understand their words. Now, if there's false teaching, then okay, let's remove that. Let's take that out. Uh, if there's truth in the midst of false teaching, as you might say with like a non-Christian work, then let's discern that. Let's talk about it together. Yeah, we just need to be wise wise about how we hear somebody and realize that there's a complexity with the reality of people's lives. There's, like you said, there's athletes that are really good at That's right. But they will molest someone or whatever, but they can still play hockey. That's but right. they're really good at what they're doing. So they're not putting them in a closet or something. So why would, if he's doing something really good at writing, why would he go between five? Because the, the reason I put Vanier privately, even though his writings are good, is for the reasons I indicated that um, it might be an obstacle to those who walk in here who've been harmed. Let's say that someone's been sexually walked in um, and has been sexually abused in the church, and they see Vanier's name and they know what Vanier's done, and then they might think that we uh, overlook that type of betrayal. Just as Vanier did, just as many churches do. But so, but and so I want to be beyond reproach. Okay. But there's also a place where it's the time to forgive and the yes. time to separate things, especially like me doing lots of canceling about my mother separating her action that we should. Right. Do. Yeah. So I see. It would be a good challenge for them to move on as well. So, yes, we can, we I'm can, challenging you. we can, we can <laughs> forgive Vanier. Yeah. You know, um, we can forgive any maybe grievances that we might, yeah. as our part, uh, as our part of being the body of Christ. Yeah. Ultimately, he will stand in judgment before God, mm -hmm. uh, and it will depend on his receiving that forgiveness, okay. or his need for that forgiveness, yeah. and whatever judgment yeah. befalls him. Mm -hmm. But there's more than just saying forgive. So let's say that. Let's say that there is a leader in a church yeah. that betrays somebody, like abuses Vanier, somebody, like Vanier, and I'm like, eh, let's just forgive the guy. Mm -hmm. You've got skeletons in your closet. Vanier's got skeletons in his closet. Hey, let bygones be bygones. But that does not promote justice to the person who's been abused. It does not. Um, uh, and so I, I'm being extra mindful mm -hmm. of those who have been abused. So Paul gives instructions in the Bible and says, um, uh, don't do anything that makes someone stumble. Which means that, uh, let's say that uh, someone came that, that, liked, um, that had trouble with alcohol, 
And then we're all going to, and I'm just kicking them back and other people are just partying and that person's struggling and that person's struggling. So if a person walks in here has been sexually abused and they see that, then it will trigger them. Yeah. And it misrepresents. So I have the freedom. Paul says you have a freedom in Christ to have Vanier's books on your library. But is it for the sake of the gospel? Does it further what Jesus is wanting? And so I want to say, okay, I want to, I want to take it away from the public library, but make it accessible to those who might be benefiting. Yeah, thank you. At the same time, you're not saying that what I'm saying is false. That's right. So I appreciate that. But I think I get the point of the trigger because me being an alcoholic going to AA for over 10 years, they say do not mention any name of alcohol because it would be a trigger. And let's talk about the solution. That's right. Yeah. So we need to be mindful of what triggers people. And so we, we have... And so we try to be sensitive. And like I said, any unnecessary obstacles, because there are obstacles to believe in Jesus, that Jesus was God, that Jesus died on the cross. So there are obstacles, but I don't want to. Jesus did not sin. So are there any other questions? Um, do you have any questions? Uh, yeah, this is Fred. I'd like to read a comment. Okay. Okay. I think it is part of Labrie's calling to teach reading with discernment. So there are an element of risk is probably necessary. There's a there's a, a need for what? There's probably an element of risk may be necessary. That's all. What do you mean by that, Fred? I mean that that I think. I think his writing should be more visible than uh, than requiring a uh, a private uh, interview. Uh, maybe maybe a, a, a sign somewhere in the library, uh, whatever. But I, I well, you, know, there are, you know, the Labrie Library is actually quite a risky one already. <laughs> um, we have lots of books that I would fundamentally disagree with, and some people come in and they're quite shocked that we have some books on our shelves. And it's not because we believe them, but because that we think that they um, are helpful dialogue partners. Sometimes, for example, someone came, I often give this example, someone came and asked if uh, there were books on proof of the resurrection of Jesus. And I said, yes. And I gave him about five books. And he said a bit shyly, um, do you have any books that say that Jesus didn't rise again from the dead? And I said, actually, yes, we do. And I gave him about five books. So he had a stack of 10 books and he read through all 10 and he was convinced that Jesus rose again from the dead and became a Christian. Now, but it was important, a part of that was that he read the books that said he did not rise and he thought that they were so weak in what they had to argue, even though these were good authoritative books on the topic. And so someone might say, why do you have a book that argues against Jesus rising again from the dead? It's for that kind of reason, for sometimes we need, people are asking different questions and they wanna know if we, if we have those, if we've been nuanced and been well-rounded and so, we don't have an extensive library. I mean, we have a pretty extensive one, but we don't have a total library. Right. But, um, but we have a pretty good one. But, um, but what I do find is that we are already pretty risky. Now, it's not that Vanier will be out forever, but I think maybe for the time being, he needs to be. Yes, that, that makes good sense. Yeah, thank you.
how important do you think it is to know the biography of an author in order to judge the value of their work? If important, then how much can we trust the public biography of an author? And how do we evaluate the works of authors who judge and not well Okay, so I believe the question um, is if I can uh, succinctly repeat what Cliff has asked is that how much do we need to know about someone's life, like a biography, before we read any certain work, uh, um, maybe to assess it better? And a second part is how, um, how might we know if that biography is even actually verifiable, true, well representative? And what about biography, or what if we don't have much knowledge of the person behind the book? Is that right, Cliff? Thank you. Yeah, I mean, I think biography is helpful. It's helpful. Uh, sometimes it's helpful to give context to their writing. So maybe someone's writing in third century versus 14th century. Maybe they're writing in South America or they're writing, um, writing in Western Europe. So it depends on their context on what kind of conditions are around them. Uh, maybe they're writing from the American South uh, in the midst of the height of slavery. Whatever it is, we're like, oh, this is the context of their writing. Now, about the person itself, I think that's pretty hard to evaluate the character of a person, though one does as best as they can. Um, you know, I think it, it is important for context, but it is not absolutely necessary. I do believe that N.T. Wright is correct in saying that we should uh, base it on the strength of the argument and on how true it is, how it measures up to the Bible. Uh, and then, of course, the context helps us to know how they were applying that. Uh, biography might give you a bit of personality and, and things like that. It helps with knowing Peter and Paul and John, but uh, it's not absolutely necessary. Now, if someone came in and didn't know anything about Jean Vanier and picked it up and thought it was a lovely book, then I may not even say anything. <laughs> I may, it depends. Uh, um, but I sometimes have found that ignorance is bliss. If, if the book itself is very good, um, I mean, there are uh, lots of things that, you know, some people don't know about you know, uh, Martin Luther King's sexual indiscretions. Uh, some people don't know about uh, Luther's tendency toward anti-Semitism. Uh, you have figures throughout history in the church who have written who have not necessarily had the most savory attitudes. And yet we can say that we've benefited from their writings. So biography helps, but, but that only is so much. I think it's more important on what the text actually says. Do you want to respond to that, Cliff? Uh, yeah, I think I mostly agree. I'm just kind of questioning within myself uh, whether I should pay more attention to the biography of the author. I generally don't pay a whole lot of attention, but more attention to the arguments. But I'm just kind of That's mulling good. that over. I think it's generally good, but... Uh, yeah, I mean, if it's an ancient author or even a 14th century person, then it might help to know their context a little bit more since it's so distant from us, uh, to understand their language, their thought forms. 
Right, that's more of the social context. I was thinking more about the character of the person and the way they live their life. Yeah, I mean, we talked about this, you know, sometimes time does heal. Uh, sometimes it uh, allows it allows what is not good to disappear and what is true remains, what is good remains. Yeah, so Liz said if it depends, I guess, on the importance of the book, on how much value uh, it is for your life and how much it shapes you. Maybe you need to know a bit more of who wrote it and what kind of person wrote it, how it, how it, it how they were influenced to write it and how it influenced them. Yeah, I mean, I think of uh, Simone Veal, like she was uh, a person who wrote very powerfully, but ended up dying because she took asceticism so seriously. So she has something helpful, but if someone doesn't recognize that, then they might take her words too far. They need to know that social and personal biography to know the context of what she's saying, to take out what's good and what's not. Yes, question here. Um, I Right. So let me see if I can reiterate the question. So, no, I, so um, if one were to write a biography of one of us, uh, then they might find in our wandering or our sinfulness, they discover things about that we hide. And it ends up revealing that maybe they shouldn't believe our words. But aren't we all sinful? And, and why would we put more weight on Vanier, on the expectation of Vanier than on any other writers because they're all sinful, aren't they? So yeah, I think that it is because it is current that I would just be cautious with Vanier at this moment uh, because it's so fresh. There's probably many people on these shelves I have no idea of their personal stories and maybe a deep egregious sin um, uh, of hurt and abuse or whatever. Yeah. Um, so yeah, one, because it's current. Uh, yes? So, Go ahead. And also because of what you said, the scripture that says, if those don't aspire to be a teacher, the people would like to know how to. Yeah, yeah, we should be. Those yeah. who are in places of authority, so not just giving much more of the credit. Yeah, so, yeah, so those who have places in authority have a higher standard. And of course, if we have this, if we have a book in here, then we're almost placing it not as an authority, but it has a power to influence. Mm -hmm. uh, and so often when I see someone reading something, I try to be, I try to help that. And a part of our work at Labrie is to recommend resources and to give context for those resources. Now, sometimes there'll be a book that people will pick up and I'm like, I haven't read that. Can you please tell me what that book is about? And so that's helped me read a lot of these books. And I always and I always encourage students, hey, if you find a book that's really shouldn't be here, uh, not just because you disagree with it, but because it's actually harmful to have here, outside of the other religions section, uh, which have some kind of Christian authors, quote unquote. Uh, and but by setting them in the context of other religions or cult, then they realize, okay, this is not something that we adhere to. So they're reading it in that context. But maybe if we have it in church history or systematic theology. Now, systematic theology, I'm much more rigorous about what to include. 
But with the biblical studies, it, it's different because there's disagreements and I allow that kind of debate to happen. But when someone picks that up, I'm like, do you know what you're reading? And do you know what, and, and sometimes they're very informed. They're like, yes, you know, sometimes a seminary student says, oh, I've been looking for this book and I didn't want to buy it. Uh, so, yeah, it's a part of our responsibility to make sure to resource people well, but also to help people understand the resources that they have. Mm -hmm. It's very difficult when people bring their own books and they refuse to read any books that we recommend. And I don't know the authors necessarily, and I can't really speak into it. Um, but there have been a few times where students have said, hey, this book promotes basically uh, hatred toward gay people. And I thought, oh, maybe they're overreacting. And I read them like, yeah, this is too severe. Um, or parenting styles. Or um, one guy said, oh, this book promotes white supremacy. I said, no, I doubt it. But then I read it and I said, yes, it does. And I didn't realize it. I mean, it's explicit. And so I was like, wow, I can't believe that book was in our library. So I always try to encourage people to realize that when they pick up a book, it's not an authority. It has the power to influence, but be critical and thoughtful and to discuss it with us. So that helps. To keep Vanier? Yeah, that's good, yeah. I mean, I think that in time that maybe we can reinstall Vanier. I would hate to start having, curating a section of offenders. Yeah. <laughs> you know, people who have fallen short. And of course, all the books would go there. You know. but, but I think that's probably wise. Uh, does anyone have a question here? Okay. Yeah. Um, the, I'm thinking of the quote. What do you think of this quote by George MacDonald, who was C.S. Lewis considered him his master? So he said, truth is true, whether from the lips of Jesus or there. So what do I do with that? Yeah. So George MacDonald, uh, an influence to C.S. Lewis, said, Truth is truth, whether it's from the lips of Jesus or from the lips of Baal. Now, yeah, I mean, I believe that uh, all truth is God's truth. Uh, I believe that there are moments when I can hear truth from someone I mean, I have been corrected by an atheist. Not to move away from my convictions, but actually to move more deeply into them. Uh, and, you know, you have someone like Caiaphas in the Bible who said it's better that one die than many. He meant it in one direction, but actually became fulfilled in a different way. Uh, you can look at Balaam and his donkey. He made a prophecy and he tried to create his own prophecy, but God used him. Um, and so there are instances where God's truth comes from the lips of those who do not know him. Or consider wisdom in Proverbs. Some of these Proverbs are actually from Egyptian texts or from Babylonian or um, um, sources. And yet they, but it doesn't mean that they've been just copied and pasted without discernment. And so the pieces that are somewhat copied and pasted from Egyptian text, the wisdom of is that they take out a few verses that are false but these other truths are true um, in the light of God's revelation and so it did not come from from the Jewish prophets but it came from the Egyptians but it still spoke of God's revelation but it had to be finalized by the word of God through the prophets 
even though it didn't come from them originally. So I would say, yes, truth is truth, whether it comes from the lips of Jesus or Baal, but they're not of same weight. Any words from Baal that are truth must, must be affirmed by Jesus. You see what I mean? Okay, you're going to chew on that? <laughs> well, but still, truth is truth. Truth is truth. Whether it's like true, God is truth. All truth is from God. So, yes. Um, yeah. So, I guess, uh, you know, people are quick to write off people who stumble and fall. Yes. They're just so quick to write them off and throw the baby with the bathroom. And I'm. I think as Christians, yes. I mean, there, there is that, but then if they're in leadership, how is it dealt with? It needs to be dealt with properly and, and not to do with that. But, but we don't have to blacklist them for everyone, maybe. Yeah, or, so, or, or if they wrote a book, is it still true? It's not, we're not perfect in every way, and, and my understanding of who God is, is not perfect in any one moment. Right. My theology is not yeah so yeah so there is a faultiness to what we say um and that we can still discern truth um even in those who have faulty speech mm -hmm. or who write books right that, that's what you're saying mm -hmm. and i agree with that um now um I do think that there can be some who speak more truth than falsehood and that even though we may not know all the truth, uh, you can sit there if you want. Okay. Uh, yeah, I mean that there are, I think there are some books that are more harmful than others. Not all books are equal. Not all speech is equal. Just because truth can be heard even in, the deep vilest sinner, mm -hmm. even from the most antagonistic atheist, doesn't mean that all truth is equal, or all speech is equal, or all. Um, it all depends on how it much. It doesn't yeah. mean he should, should be promoted if he has some truth, but mostly bad. Like he wouldn't promote. Yeah, if someone had like ninety-seven, yeah, yeah. like I'm not going to put. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I'm not going to put Mein Kampf by Hitler in the library and recommend it, you know. Uh, I would say this is vile and it actually causes a lot of harm unless you're into Hitler studies, which by then you already have a book. Um, so we don't need to carry it, but yeah, it's, yeah, I mean, it, there's some books that I would say, you know, some books are very tricky. So like, I might, it might be more important for me not to have the book Total Church for instance, the one that kind of doesn't allow the safeguards for abuses that can happen. It doesn't mean that it leads to abuses, but it's possible to allow abuses from that foundation. Then maybe I need to consider that more dangerous than Necessary Vanier, who doesn't say anything that would lead to sin, even though his life represented that. Uh, and so we do need to discern what, what books are more dangerous than others. And... So I do believe that books can be dangerous. I'm not naive to think that they can't, 
but I'm also not a fear monger thinking, okay, there's only these 10 books and only these authors I'm going to listen to. I want to give them a reading. But at the end of the day, the Bible has to be my final authority in how I discern these things mm -hmm. and to allow that to be, um, to allow the community of interpreters, the community, the body of believers to help me to discern the truth of those books. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. So Tara was asking the question, if we have some kind of uh, discernment as a body of believers in Labrie, and we do. But uh, there's a lot of trust because we know each other so well and that we work together so intimately. Even across the world, we know each other's work so well and that we've come to know each other. And so, you know, some denominations, so church groups, you might not know exactly what one church is doing, but we're a small entity. There's only, there's only 35 members, probably only about 50 workers worldwide. And uh, we have a lot of trust when we put people in that place. And then my role particularly is to discern what kind of books we have, what kind of movies we show, what kind of conversations are being had. Uh, and so, but that authority is not just my own, but it's one that has been invested to me by Labrie, and I'm responsible to Labrie. Uh, directors, uh, well, as many branches as we're on. So eight-ish, yeah. And there's a, and there's a uh, kind of a, uh, a yearly elected body called the trustees, of which I'm a part that um, try to discern also what is being taught. And so we want to look at the ethos and the doctrine of what is being taught about, throughout Labrie. But Labrie does ha have a lot of variety because we don't necessarily, we don't have to welcome a Christian into our doors. Uh, and people who walk in up who are Christians are of various stripes and of various beliefs. Um, some good beliefs, some bad beliefs. And, but they're welcomed in to ask their questions and we work it out in, that con in this context. Uh, yes, Annika. One second, Fred. I was <laughs> um, just thinking about like, like the context where these kind of abuses happen, and that idea of the church that can be like a total institution, or even other organizations, yeah. ministries that can become. Yeah. So the question is, is how can how might we place safeguards uh, um, in communities that don't make them total institutions, mm -hmm. um, or so controlling? that basically creates conditions where abuses are more easily happen, like control, like Mars Hill um, uh, with Mark Driscoll or Steve Timmis or various churches. And <clears throat> yeah, I mean, I think that outside <clears throat> the, you know, one person said that the health of a, the health of a Christian body is by its exits and entrances. I thought that was really helpful. And what, it, what he meant by that is that what kind of people, does it welcome people or does it close itself off? And when people exit, do they exit and they're cut off or is there an extended body? And so in a sense of how might we, um, how might, do we let the windows open? Do we let fresh air in and out of these communities? Or are they so closed up that um, they can be stifling and insular, and then that can create a lot of um, in-body politics and control. Right? So.
So is that one second, Tara? Yeah. yeah, I think so. And then just, I guess, thank you specifically about who these, like, who the players typically are. Like, often it's like men in positions of power. Yeah. I guess, like, what checks or what kind of, yeah. And, and acknowledging that, like, there's a whole lot of insecurity that comes with that power too. So maybe it just seems like there's, there's a problem in the system. Yeah, so those conditions can increase the power of those in power, usually males. Uh, yeah, and that's where there needs to also be a distribution of power. And it's not that I believe that there shouldn't be leaders. I don't believe I don't believe that it's that it's always bad to have hierarchy, but how does that hierarchy serve? How does it function to the life of the body? And is it to control it or is it to, to resource it? And that's the big difference. And, and I think that that's also unhealthy in a, in a community where there's not that resourcing, but it's control. Lots of people have been so damaged by that that they've left the church and left Jesus because of little house churches. And now, I think it's true in some degree, but N.T. Wright said that he thinks that older, more established traditions like Anglicanism um, have more accountability and more oversight uh, to prevent that kind of thing. And he thinks that young upstarts have more problems because there's not that oversight and that any one person, on any one leader can take over. Uh, yeah, or Catholicism. Now, is that in response to this or is it different? Uh... Yeah, in response. To in response, that. okay. Um, yeah, I just agree that the church, the congregation, puts so much, like you said, on the pastor. It's reputation of being looking at him. Right, the congregation expects a lot. When it should, we should be all doing the work, and not yeah, just we, one, yeah. and not putting it on one. So the system is flawed. I, I totally agree. Yeah, I do believe the church is complicit, and we all need to. Uh, take part and I knew this one pastor who was taken on too much and I advocated not to give him things and so I had to stand up and say no you have to take something and you have to take something so I delegated on behalf of the pastor who was taken too much on mm -hmm. and it was actually to the to his health okay Fred and maybe this is the last question well this is a very important discussion I have often found there are I wanted to address issues with a leader and I didn't know how uh, and I wasn't so it would be it's important that members in the congregation have have access to the center of power or be at least comfortable to speak to that to uh, to a pastor but I find it very difficult to do uh, it's difficult to um, to approach or counteract a, um, a leader. Is that what you said? Challenge it. I find it very difficult to challenge a pastor uh, on any issue. So, I think bad pastors are difficult to challenge, and you also have to understand that uh, the challenge, uh, because pastors are under a lot of stress and expectations, and so sometimes when they receive a challenge, it's just another failure that they have to chalk up. Uh, another difficulty. And so sometimes it's difficult for them to hear the challenge. 
Now, if there is some type of relationship with the pastor, then that can usually be easier if they know where you're coming from. Uh, if you don't know the pastor, it's much more difficult. If you are a person of leadership in the church, then it comes easier. Uh, not always, but it depends on if there's competitive forces there or not. But, uh, but if, if there's someone who is pitching into the mission of the church, then that is usually a more credible source. But, uh, yeah, I mean, we have to be very wise. Like Nathan had to be very wise in how he approached King David, who had total power. And there wasn't room, and so he prayed. And, and then the widow of Tekoa had to go, um, and also for the woman. or you know, This woman approached Nathan, I mean, David, and had to also do the same thing. So there's lots of Proverbs that speak about how to be wise in our speech, um, with tact, in speaking to those in power. It is difficult. Uh, it's not something new, uh, but um, but there's well, usually some conditions that enable it. I, I was thinking more that it's difficult for me su subjectively to to do I that. Hmm. Yeah, to to get myself out of my lethargy and and take the risk. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, it can be difficult to. Uh, it can be difficult to have courage to face a pastor at times as well, um, to, and to know when to speak and if it's something to speak about. Yes. Okay, well, thank you everyone. So great to see all the people at Greg's. I hope you have a great family affair. <laughs> uh, Cliff, great to see you in Peru. The Snell. Clark, great to see you. Wonderful to see you at my lecture. Um, Red, just a good to see you. Good to see you, Meg. And, a great uh, talk. Uh, yeah, wonderful to see you as well. A dear person, Linda. So anyway, well, have a good evening and uh, and wonderful that you could all join us. So glad everyone could join us here. Thank you. So, Thank you. Thank you.